I remember I once heard a story of a man who wanted to preach, thought it was his gift and really was bugging the pastor and said, but I really believe God wants me to teach and preach from the pulpit. And the pastor, being wise and of experience, said, I'll tell you what, I want you to go downstairs and I want you to teach first graders for a year. And then we'll evaluate afterwards to see if you're ready to teach. And it is amazing sometimes when we find ourselves in that position, we take for granted that it's a simple task to teach young people, Uh, but it's not. (laughs) Those of us who have young kids or have had young kids understand that their attention span is about five to ten minutes, and that's about it. Um, As well as some of us adults, I think we suffer from that as well. Well, this morning we're going to do a, a little topical, and this was born out of a conversation I had with my daughter Stephanie when she was here in June. And we talked about various things going on in the world, in our lives, personally, and so forth. And for some reason, we got on the subject of conscience. We started to ask questions about it, kick it around a bit, trying to figure out what what is conscience really about? You know, is our conscience, as I said here, should our conscience be our guide? What does that mean? So that started me on my quest to continue to study, continue to look through this. And it's amazing how many books have been written about conscience, both biblical, secular, psychological, whatever. Everybody has an opinion about what conscience is. But we're going to take a look at what conscience is from God's perspective this morning, how God defines it what it is about, how we influence our conscience in so many ways we may not even realize. So I hope this morning that as we go through this, you have a deeper understanding of what that is and also how to continue to mature it, grow it, protect it, and so forth. Should your conscience be your guide? The Walt Disney's 1940 animation adaptation of an Italian story written in 1882, we are introduced to a wooden puppet named Pinocchio. Pinocchio was a boy created by a lonely old woodcarver named Geppetto. As the story goes, this puppet then befriends a cricket named Jiminy, who introduces himself as his conscience. The story is told that this wooden puppet wants to become a real living boy. Through a variety of situations, he is both rewarded and also suffers the consequences by not listening to his so-called friend, Jiminy Cricket, his conscience. He is told that every time he tells a lie, a certain part of his face will grow. And every time he tells that lie, the growth extends even farther. But his friend, this small little bug who is representing his conscience, begins to give him counsel and advice. And Jiminy warns Pinocchio when he sees that certain decisions will have an adverse consequence and will lead to a growth problem on his face. Each time Pinocchio makes the wrong decision, he's faced with that growth. But each time he is faced with that decision, his conscience is there to give him advice. This cricket friend constantly and continually reminds him 
Let your conscience be your guide. In the end, Pinocchio becomes a real boy and a son to the old woodcarver. His friend and guide has been proven right. Knowing what is right and wrong is one thing, but doing what is right or wrong is another. If you remember, the little song has three little verses to it. When you get in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle. When you meet temptation and the urge is very strong, give a little whistle. And if your whistle is weak, yell Jiminy Cricket. Take the straight and narrow path, and if you start to slide, give a little whistle. A police sergeant in Midvale, Utah, upon opening his wallet, noticed that his driver's license had expired. Embarrassed at having caught himself red-handed, he had no alternative, so he calmly and deliberately pulled out his ticket book and wrote himself a citation. The officer later took the ticket to the city judge who fired, or fined him. When the judge inquired about the sergeant's action, he replied, How could I give a ticket to anyone else for an expired license in the future if I didn't cite myself? Here's an interesting little tidbit. Did you know that ever since 1811, when someone who had defrauded the government anonymously sent $5 to Washington, D.C.? The U.S. Treasury established and has operated a conscience fund since then. Since that time, almost $3.5 million has been received from guilt-ridden citizens. What happens when you tell a lie or gossip about somebody? Is there an inner sense telling you what is right and what is wrong? What about people who commit horrible crimes against humanity? Do they have an inner sense crying out, disturbing their peace or their sleep? We have all grown up hearing it said, let your conscience be your guide. Is that a good thing? What is our conscience? Is our conscience always a good guide for our thoughts and actions? Well, the Bible has much to say about our conscience. There is no word for conscience in the Old Testament Hebrew, but is illustrated several times. Joseph's brothers certainly felt a sting in their conscience when they first came to Egypt to purchase corn. While Joseph's identity was concealed, he tested his brothers, accusing them of being spies and casting them into prison. In Genesis 42-21, we read their response. They said, We are surely guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the anguish of his soul when we besought him. And we would not hear, therefore, is this distress has come upon us. Joseph was not pointing the finger at his brothers, reminding them of their past cruelty. They didn't even know that they were in his presence. Joseph wasn't dead. He was alive. And so was their conscience. We can also go back to the very beginning in Genesis 3-7 when Adam and Eve tried to hide from God because of their disobedience. The word conscience is used over 32 times in the King James translation of the New Testament. 21 of those times is used by the Apostle Paul. The root of the Greek word translates as to be aware, to have knowledge of. The Greek-speaking people in the New Testament days used this word in their everyday conversation. 
It basically described the pain that you feel when you do something wrong. The question then becomes, how do I learn to distinguish, distinguish between right and wrong? Every human being is created in the image of God. Part of that means that in God's image, we have been also given a conscience that instinctively recognizes good and evil and tells us right from wrong. Every civilization and culture in the world has adopted similar standards for its people based on this inherent understanding of good and evil. Murder, theft, and deceit are universally understood to be wrong. But sometimes depravity overrides that knowledge, and a people group chooses to value evil rather than forbid it, as was in the case of the infanticide practiced by the heathen surrounding Israel in Leviticus 18 and 2 Kings 23. Due to our sin nature, we tend to excuse the evil in ourselves. A continual pattern of excusing evil leads to the digression and destruction of our conscience. Romans 128 gives us God's response to those who persist in evil. It says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would do what ought not to be done. There is a point at which God lets go. Those who insist on keeping their sin can now sin boldly and suffer no convictions of their conscience. They believe they have transcended their conscience and outsmarted God. But their judgment will come when they stand before Him. As darkness is defined by the absence of light, sin is defined by the absence of goodness. Since God is the very embodiment of good, anything contrary to His nature is not. We learn to distinguish between good and evil by getting to know God. His word is the foundation for understanding. Understanding Him and understanding His truth. The closer we draw to the holiness of God, the worse sin appears. We see our own greed, covetedness, lust, and deceitfulness for the evils that they are. It is only in God's light that we begin to see ourselves clearly as God already sees us. Secondly, we can also learn to distinguish between right and wrong by knowing God's Word. It is the Bible that delineates what is sinful and what is not. The author of Hebrews speaks of those who are immature in their faith, who can only digest spiritual milk, the most basic principles of God's Word. In contrast to the babes, in Christ are the spiritually mature, who by contrast use, uh, have con who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. A follower of Christ strengthens their spiritual sense through the constant and consistent use, study, and application of God's Word. The ability to tell right from wrong, to distinguish between biblical doctrine and man's wisdom, comes by studying and applying God's truth. God's Word is filled with examples of those who did right, and those who did wrong. Those examples are there for us to learn what God is like and what He desires from all of us. In Malachi 3.18, God makes it very clear. He says, And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Regardless of how good a person may appear to others, 
His or her good works amount to little if they are done for selfish reasons. If we make it our goal to seek God and honor Him in everything we do, then our conscience will be affected by His truth and not our own. As we go through and we look at our conscience, individually, our personalities play a role. Our upbringing plays a role. Plays a role. Different aspects of our life each day play a role. So we're going to take a look at those. Let's pray first. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we have a plumb line in which to evaluate, engage everything. Our thoughts, our words, our actions. Lord, help us see the truth of your word. That, Father, that our conscience would be stimulated and sensitized by your truth. Those things we might think are good may not after the message today and after your word reveals those things. But Father, we submit ourselves to your word, to your truth. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Should your conscience be your guide? Well, if you take your outline, we're going to look at the first seven characteristics of a conscience. Number one, God's word speaks of a good conscience. In 1 Timothy 1.5, it says, Now the end of the commandment is love, out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and of sincere faith. A good conscience is one that is healthy and sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. In short, a good conscience is working as intended by God. It is pushing us and pointing us in the right direction keeping us on course. A mother asks her son if he knew the difference between conscience and conscience. He said, sure, Mom. Conscience is when you're aware of something. Conscience is when you wish you weren't. Secondly, God's Word speaks of a blameless or clear conscience. To be blameless means to be without offense. Acts 24.16 says, And Paul is writing, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense towards God and toward men. The function of the conscience is to warn us, to indict us, to convict us. The brothers of Joseph did not have a blameless conscience until they were face to face with Joseph. They were filled with guilt when they left their brother. But it wasn't until they saw him they felt that. Their conscience was not blameless. Third, God's word speaks of a pure or clear conscience. 2 Timothy 1.3 says, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers day and night. This is a conscience that is clean, without regret, Paul was always giving his all and doing his best for God and others. A clear conscience is a wonderful thing in the day of accusation. It liberates us from fear and instills courage. A clear conscience gives room for an abiding peace. We can remain calm and confident when events around us are causing issues. 
Fourthly, God speaks of a weak conscience. In 1 Corinthians 8.12, it says, Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. A man consulted his doctor and said, I've been misbehaving, doc, and my conscience is troubling me. So the doctor answers, So you want something that will strengthen your willpower? He said, No, not exactly. I was thinking of something that would weaken my conscience. A weak conscience is one that can be easily swayed or influenced by others. It lacks knowledge and understanding of the truth. Fifthly, God's word speaks of a defiled or corrupted conscience. Titus 1.15 Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. The word defiled means to be corrupted or polluted in some way. Our conscience is like a window. When it's clean, more light can enter. When it's dirty, it hides that light. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew six twenty-two 22-23. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single whole and healthy, the whole body shall be full of light. But if the eye is evil and full of darkness, then that darkness will overcome. If therefore the light that is in you be dark, how great is that darkness? Our conscience can be weakened, dulled, and dimmed by the sin we make and how we accept and tolerate it in our lives. When we sin, refusing to acknowledge it as such, it defiles and corrupts. Or the process of corruption and defiling begins. Sixthly, the God's word speaks of an evil conscience. Let us draw nearer, it says in Hebrews 22, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. An evil conscience is one that is so defiled, so corrupt, that it turns our values upside down, confusing and blurring the distinction between right and wrong, moral and immoral. Kind of what we see today, right is wrong and wrong is right, up is down and down is up. And finally, God's word speaks of a seared conscience. We are in trouble when personal sin no longer bothers us. 1 Timothy 4.2 says, Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared as with a hot iron. A seared conscience is one that is cut off, silenced, beyond sensitivity, will not listen to the truth, calloused. Someone said the antagonism between life and conscience may be removed in two ways, by a change of life or by a change of conscience. As you can see, those seven are a digression of conscience. We start with a good conscience and we end up at a seared conscience. Which shows that the more we allow certain sin in our life, the deeper we fall, the more dead our conscience becomes, the more callous we are towards God's truth. Oswald Chambers in his book, My Utmost for His Highest, said, 
Conscience is that ability within me that attaches itself to the highest standard I know and then continually reminds me of what that standard demands I do. It is the eye of the soul which looks out either towards God or toward what we regard as the highest standard. This explains why conscience is different in different people. If I am in the habit of continually holding God's standard in front of me, my conscience will always direct me to God's perfect law and indicate what I should do. The question is, will I obey? I have to make every effort to keep my conscience sensitive so that I can live without any offense towards God or anyone else. I should be living in such, a perfect, in, in such perfect harmony with Christ that my mind is being renewed through the Holy Spirit in every circumstance of life that I may be quick to prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. You still wondering what your conscience is? Well, I'll give you a definition. The conscience is defined as a part of the human psyche that introduces or induces mental anguish or feelings of guilt when we violate it, or feelings of pleasure and well-being when our actions, thoughts, and words are in conformity to our value system. The conscience reacts when one's actions, thoughts, and words conform to or are contrary to a standard of right and wrong. In our society today, we have a constant redefining of what's right and what is wrong. Kids growing up today in schools had a whole different set of authority than we did when we grew up in school. Sometimes the kids grow up, they don't know what authority is. And when authority shows its ugly head from their perspective, it must be wrong. When I was growing up, as many of you, when we got in trouble at school, we got in trouble at home. So you thought twice about getting in trouble in school because you knew that you were going to get paid at home. We respected authority because it was defined properly. Now we're redefining so many morals in our society. We have a hard time keeping up with it. It's moving so rapid. The problem with the voice of our conscience is that we live in a world inhabited by bodies infected, influenced, and inclined to sin. We can change, weaken, and permanently damage our conscience depending on the foundation of our values. We might compare our conscience to an alarm clock. Its initial design is to go off when we violate God's moral law. But alarm clocks, however, can be turned off and changed, whatever suits us at the time. They can even be turned down so we don't hear them. And yes, they do have the almighty snooze button. We, all, all, we are all experts at justifying and rationalizing our attitudes of behavior when it suits us. The fact is, is that God has given us, given us this internal alarm clock. Guilt is real. Our conscience is connected with our sense of guilt. When we feel morally, when we fail morally or sin, we can dismiss it, we can deny it, we can distort it, or we can deal with it. Our God-given conscience is designed to help us deal with our sin and recognize our need for God's grace. But our conscience, however, is not a sufficient guide in and of itself. 
There are varying conditions of the conscience. Our conscience can be in good condition or poor condition and even dead. There's three points here. As followers of Christ, our conscience is God-given. It's created within. It should be God-guided, walking by the Spirit. And it should be God-governed, life with love. Romans 2, 14-16 says, For when the Gentiles who did not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Our conscience is a God-given capacity to critique ourselves. In 1 Corinthians 4.4, Paul reflects upon his ministry and motives and knows nothing against himself, saying, my conscience is clear. But he affirms that he still is subject to a holy God. Paul illustrates that the conscience is not an end of itself, but is subject before God's truth. How easy it is for us to tolerate, justify certain things in our lives without looking at God's Word and what He says about it. In that case, we start to weaken our conscience. Secondly, our conscience should be God-guided. John 16, 12-15 says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is mine, and declare it to you. Romans 8.14 For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Galatians 5.16 But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So the conscience is consistently an image and a witness to something, a testimony. Conscience is not an independent authority that originates judgment. The idea of conscience as a judge or legislator in the sense of originating an opinion is a modern innovation of the conscience. A witness does not create evidence but is bound to respond to the evidence that exists. The conscience does not dictate the content of right and wrong. It merely witnesses to what the value system in a person has determined as right or wrong. In this regard, conscience is not a guide, but needs to be guided by, thoroughly, and equipping a critically critically developed value system. Our conscience is a servant of the value system we cultivate. 
we remember as we were growing up that our conscience were cultivated as young children by our parents mostly, then by our schools, then as we got older, our friends, then as we got older into high school, maybe it was coaches, maybe it's uh, you're involved in music, music teachers. Every step along the way, there was an addition or an influence to our conscience. Many grew up in my kind of world, was very disciplined. I knew what discipline was. I knew not to get out of that because there was a consequence. My nose wouldn't grow, but my backside might because of getting spanked. So God has a way of using you parents to mold and shape the conscience of your children. It is serious, long-lasting, and has the effects well into their adulthood life. A person's judgment may be wrong in the light of biblical enlightenment, but he or she must be corrected. They must get the right information. They must look to the truth in which to evaluate if their conscience is steering and guiding them correctly or not. Thirdly, our conscience should be God-governed. I took a little bit more time in this area because I wanted to expand upon in 1 Timothy. And he's talking here about love. And he's talking about how we are to live. And he says that we come from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. We're going to take a look at each one of those. First, biblical love stems from a pure heart. And that little I there is informed by the truth. God who alone can see what is in every heart weighs our motives. If we act in an outwardly loving way towards someone, but our inner motive is to get something back for ourselves or to use the person for our own selfish pleasure or fulfillment, or to manipulate the person for our own ultimate gain, we are not loving with a pure heart. It might look like love, but inside it is not. Love from a pure heart is love that has been cleansed from all self-centeredness. Love that truly seeks the glory of God by seeking His highest good for the other person, even if it means personal sacrifice and loss. The only way we can be freed from our innate selfishness to love in that manner is to be inwardly cleansed by God's truth. The only way we can get there is through the cross of Christ, as we sang this morning, where God's sacrificial love was supremely demonstrated and then die to self daily by denying ourself and walking continually in the light of God's grace. To love from a pure heart requires that we deal with our sin personally, especially our selfishness, our pride, our thoughts. You know, before we take any action that we have a thought process, what is influencing that? We call out to Him for our selfless and pure love. We truly seek 
want to seek the highest good for the other person. That brings glory to God. Did you know how we live our lives outside of these four walls? In our jobs, what we do for a living, that is where God's glory shines. How are we portraying God's glory? We sing these songs this morning of God's grace and mercy. We taught Wednesday night about God's grace and mercy. Are we living that outside these four walls? What we do, what we say, how we act. Then you'll know if you have a pure heart. A lot of times people will say, well, you live your life differently behind the doors than you do outside those doors. Well, you have a wife or a husband or children, they know the truth to that. That's another gauge to see if your heart is pure. Secondly, biblical love stems from a good conscience. Good conscience is increased by our understanding of God's truth. Our conscience, the knowledge of ourselves that we share together with God alone. Apart from ourselves, only God knows our thoughts and the things we do when no one else is looking. We don't get away with anything, even though we might hide it. Like Adam and Eve tried. God says, why are you hiding? Everyone stands guilty before a holy God because every person, whether you're religious or not, has violated their own conscience in God's law. The only way we can have a good conscience is to ask God to cleanse us. And that cleansing comes through faith in Christ, who died for those sins, was raised, and sits at the right hand of God. Then having been made right with God through faith in Christ, we live each day by maintaining a clear conscience, both before God and men. We do this by continually confessing our sin, sins of thought, sins of intention, sins of motive, sins of action. Although we are forgiven, we want to keep short accounts of our sinfulness. Even if the person started the problem is sinning against you, even if he or she has continued to sin against you and has never sought your forgiveness, you cannot be obedient to God's command to love until you go to that person and clear your conscience with them and ask for his or her forgiveness. Love must stem from a pure heart and a good conscience. Also, biblical love stems from a sincere faith. That sincere faith should influence our lives. This sincere faith, this phrase means faith without hypocrisy or play acting. I'm using this as an example. It doesn't happen at this church, but just as an example. When somebody says, how are you doing? They go, oh, I'm doing fantastic. They might be doing fantastic, but then again, they might walk in troubled in some way. Now, some of us are afraid to share our inner feelings and stresses because of embarrassment, because we might be misunderstood. But part of us need to do that because our brothers and sisters in Christ, they're going through things as well. And if they're not, they will. And we need to be there for one another. Again, this term goes below the outward appearance and looks at your heart. 
Sincere faith is, a direct, is directed towards Jesus Christ and resulting in loving others because you want to please the Lord. Hypocritical faith plays to the audience, ignoring and forgetting that God is watching. You can put on the outward show of faith that looks pious to everyone and religious, but your heart is self-serving. You can act loving to a person's face, but then run him down behind his back. On a particular old children's TV program, the host presented himself as an outwardly kind and, and sweet man towards all the kids. After the program ended, unfortunately, he thought he was off the air, but he wasn't. He turned to the person next to him off camera and muttered, that ought to fix those little brats for another day. His sincerity and kindness was not real. I often think about that. Not that I'm on a program, but God's watching. You know, everything we do and say and think. There's a story of a couple that was expecting a baby. At the office where the husband worked, his fellow workers seemed so caring and concerned about his wife and the expected child. As the time drew near, they would ask, How's your wife doing? Any news yet? Is she feeling all right? When do you think the baby will be born? It all sounded so sincere, so caring. But then the man found out that there was an office pool betting on the exact date of the delivery. They didn't seem to really care about the couple or their baby. They only cared about winning the pool. That's not loving from a sincere faith either. Thus, biblical love stems from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That means that at its core, biblical love stems from a right relationship with God and the motive of seeking to please and glorify Him. So what stands in the way? What hinders our conscience? The Bible speaks, as I said before, of a seared conscience in 1 Timothy 1, or 4, 1 and 2. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse, even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This word seared literally means to cauterize with a hot iron. It has been rendered insensitive, hardened, calloused. I thought about the old ranchers when they're branding the cattle and that sear that you hear and you hear that cow kind of give a little whatever and then boom, they're gone. And I've been told that their hide is so thick they don't feel what we would you know, imagine that they might feel. But they know something's going on. But that brand remains forever. Never goes away. It's almost like getting a tattoo. Once you get a tattoo, it's very hard to remove. But the cauterization of our conscience is one that hardens it. Such a conscience does not work properly. It's like having spiritual scar tissue on your conscience. It has dulled the sense of right and wrong. It has made us numb to further pain. So the heart of an individual with a seared conscience is desensitized to their moral convictions or the values that they once held. 
How do those conscience get seared? As we look further in 1 Timothy and read through, I just want us to turn there for 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we'll go through and we'll read starting in verse 1. It says, But the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy, of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected. Reading this morning of what Emmanuel was sharing allows us to look at this in a way that we understand how our conscience can be seared. First of all, I'm trying to think, is that correct? 1 Timothy 1, 4, yeah. I'm having my wife's Bible. That's why I'm trying to make sure that it's here, here. Uh, so in verse, it starts in verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be good servants of Christ, constantly nourishing on the words of faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only a little but profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. How we are deceived. We can be deceived by false teachers. These are agents of deception. They lead others into apostasy. They are mouthpieces for evil spirits, since they promote and endorse things taught by demons. Secondly, by false truth. These are agents of liars, hypocrites. They wear a mask of holiness and act accordingly, but are full of falsehoods. Thirdly, false character. These are agents of selfishness or self-seekers. They are unprincipled, devious, They portray themselves as people of faith, but they have ulterior motives to promote themselves. They are the wolves in sheep's clothing because their consciences have been cauterized. This explains how false teachers can lie with no shame and spread deception with no reluctance or hesitation. Why? Because they have seared their conscience. Their conscience is numb. They are past feeling whatever is right or wrong or knowing. In there I put, they have gone from a sincere conscience to a sin-seared conscience. That's what sin does. We lose our sensitivity and compassion. We have no more feelings. You might hear people say, I don't care. Whatever. We lose our clarity of understanding. We don't listen anymore. Some might say, it doesn't matter. We lose our direction or distinction. 
we are unwilling to see. So our response is, so what? We lose our sense of right and wrong. We lose our moral thinking. And we often say, I don't believe it. These attitudes have a great effect on our conscience. The conscience reacts and responds to moral law. If the law has been manipulated, distorted, or influenced by redefining, replacing, redirecting, the conscience cannot, will not function the way God intended. It can only function properly when and where there is sound and moral law established. Morality has been under constant destruction and has been perverted to promote self-centeredness, selfish ambitions, creating a self-serving morality. And this starts with the constant attack, the constant distortion and redefinition of God's already established moral laws and truths. There is no absolute authority and control, no discipline, no submission to those godly laws. Thus, the breakdown of our society is imminent. How does this happen? First, the breakdown of moral codes and laws, the standards of normalcy. Secondly, the breakdown of conscience is weakened, defiled, and eventually seared. Thirdly, the breakdown and redefinition of family against God's intended and defined foundation. And fourthly, the breakdown of respect and compliance with authority, the disobedience and disregard of those that God has put in authority over us. How do we know right from wrong? Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Meditate day and night. Secondly, he walks in the light. 1 John 1, 7 through 5 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And in John eight twelve, again Jesus speaks to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Knowing right from wrong. You fight for your faith. First Timothy 1, 18 through 19 says, This I charge, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. Again in 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life of which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of my witness. And I like this one in Jude 3.4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and to deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. We're living in those days. 
What can we do to maintain a good and clear conscience? Three steps to do this. First, we must determine to make the written Word of God our constant guide and standard for our life. This is the changeless standard to which we must hold our conscience to. Someone has said, Conscience is a trustworthy compass when God's Word is your north. Our minds are like cups with holes in the bottom of them. The Word of God is like water poured into the cup with a hole in it. The water eventually drains out of the cup after each filling. But in order to keep the cup filled, we must continually fill it with water. Likewise, we must continue to fill our minds with God's Word each day so that God's commands and our hearts are constantly on our minds and become second nature to us. Secondly, we must keep short accounts with our sin and moral failures. Accept God's forgiveness. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. We can cleanse our conscience through confession and repentance. Hebrews 9.14 speaks of purging our conscience. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Faith in the sacrifice of Christ also acts as a cleansing agent to purge our conscience from dead works through the Holy Spirit. When our conscience is cleansed, we are able to live according to the ways shown by God's Word with and through the help of the Holy Spirit. These are things we cannot do on our own. Step three, we must remain sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Do not substitute your conscience with the Holy Spirit. They're two different things. We must apply God's promises. 2 Peter 1, 3-8 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And then it gives a list. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to your goodness, knowledge, to your knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, a mutual affection to mutual affection of love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, then you will keep from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love what it says. These qualities are in increasing measure. Measure, that means you're maturing, you're growing, you're seeking, you're desiring. Whether we realize it or not, we are influenced by our conscience every day. Our parents, our home, our culture, the neighborhood in which we live, our choice of friends, the electronic media, movies, television, music, I mean, you can make your own list of what things influence our conscience. But remember, our conscience is a gift from God that is not to be taken lightly. 
A good, godly, sensitive, healthy conscience leads to a good, godly, sensitive, and healthy life before the world to bring God glory. The goal of the follower of Christ is to develop a mature, sensitive, sincere, faithful conscience. The Holy Spirit teaches the believer most clearly what is right and what is wrong from God's Word. The Word informs us of the truth. The Spirit enables us to welcome and embrace and then live by that truth so that it transforms us from the inside outwardly. And then we begin to develop those deep-seated convictions in the non-moral areas of our life that can guide us and direct us truthfully. The Bible teaches that it is wrong to go against our conscience, but it also clearly teaches that we must be careful to have our conscience informed and educated by God's truth. John MacArthur writes, When we live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, and obey the Spirit, we can trust our conscience because it is under divine control. One of Martin Luther's most famous sayings was, My conscience is captive only to the Word of God. That's something that we could really strive for. God certainly does not desire us, desire us to oversensitize our conscience with needless empty guilt. However, we must never forget the grace of God extended to us through the Lord Jesus Christ that promised us forgiveness. His atoning work on that cross freed us from all our sin, past, present, and future. And at the same time, God does not want our conscience to be desensitized, weakened, or defiled. We thank God for our conscience. Make the most of this God-given gift instead of letting your conscience be your guide. We must make sure that God's Word in and through Christ is our guide. I'll close with this. Psalm 19 7 through 11. And I know it's up there on the, on the board here again. Oh, you had it marked for me. Thank you. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring your soul. The testimony of the law, Lord, is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold and sweeter also than honey, even the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Everything we need to know is in God's Word. Sometimes it's hard to look or find, but it's there. If you're here this morning... And there's things that are bothering your conscience. Look in God's Word about how it addresses that uncertainty. Or maybe there's a feeling that you may have done something wrong, but you're not sure. 
or you're doing something right and you're not sure. Our default is always God's word, regardless of where we find ourselves in our life. But take this moral foundation of Psalm 19, 7 through 11. When you're in doubt, go over those verses. Remind yourself of the truth of God's word and the benefits, the benefits that we have in Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you have given us the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have so many great things and promises for us. Lord, we want to surrender ourselves to you. Lord, we want to examine ourselves to see if our conscience is good, pure, clear, blameless. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God a loving God who cares. And Lord, I pray that if there are those here this morning who have yet to put their faith and trust in those truths, that they would examine themselves, Lord. Maybe they've been living by a different conscience all their lives, but it's time to get right with you. It's time to surrender their conscience to your truth and really see, Lord, whether it's good or not. All good things come from you. And Father, as we sang this morning, at the cross, at that cross, is the forgiveness of our sin. It's not enough just to believe in it, in our minds, but Father, to walk in it by faith. So I thank you, Father, for the opportunity that your word presents to each one of us. And the truth of that word Thank you, Father, for your grace in each one of our lives. We ask you to bless it. In Jesus' name, amen.